Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If any of you guys haven't checked it out and you're interested at all in uh, this subject matter, I posted a podcast yesterday about uh, Michael Wolff's new book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, with lots of my opinions and ideas and researched information about uh, the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency and various things, as well as some pretty critical remarks about Hillary's campaign, the media, and lots of other things that I just like to rant about. Um, you know, politics is mostly a lot of opinion, and so that video that I posted the podcast is a lot of opinion. But it is uh, a chance for you to see me in a shirt and tie and jacket rather than a t-shirt and, um, and just sort of let loose for an hour on that whole subject. I don't find uh, making things about politics or talking about politics to be particularly as satisfying as I do talking about these other things because I, I think the main subject matter of my channel is more broadly helpful and useful than talking about politics. But I tell you, man, just like everybody else, been really uh, wrapped up in this for the last couple years and a uh, year and a half or so. And I, and I just, I, I, have to, I have to say what I have to say sometimes. So anyway, um, for those of you who left some positive comments and feedback on that, thank you very much. I really did appreciate it. Um, and if you disagree with me, that's totally fine too. I'm not, you know, really particularly interested in getting in big, long, uh, drag out arguments about things. Um, all I ask is if you watch what I put out, please do actually watch and if you're going to respond to what I say, then respond to what I said and not what you think I said, which in fact somebody else actually said that, that somehow I've triggered or something, because uh, that happens. Uh, anyway, so that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your uh, questions now. Uh, I'm sure we, what we're going to be doing this week is I actually went back and pulled some very old questions I've had in the queue for a while. Um, I'm trying to clean out some old stuff, and so that's uh, what we're going to tackle this week. Here we go. The Crackpot. Ex-Scientologist here. I have a bit of a tinfoil hat theory that I would like to share. During my time as a Scientologist, I never made it to any advanced lectures like the Congresses, but from what I have studied, it seems like there are dozens of examples of missing audio scattered throughout many of his lectures. Do you think that there might have been an intentional purge of what the church believes to be unfavorable statements or opinions from these lectures? It feels like a stretch, to be honest, since I'm sure in reality it was probably just cheap equipment. What do you think? Do you have any examples, perhaps even entire books and lectures, that the church is trying to make everyone forget about? Thanks for indulging me. Well, this is one conspiracy theory that is actually 100% true. And it is a conspiracy of uh, high-level, you know, editors and uh, David Miscavige and anybody else on the decision-making lines of uh, Golden Era Productions who decides what to put out of L. Ron Hubbard's written and spoken works. And they have definitely, I mean without question, I know this for an absolute fact, have edited uh, many of his lectures have changed the uh, way he sounded, have changed the content of the, of the lectures and books uh, extensively. In fact, there are people who have spent quite a bit of time uh, documenting this. You can find some of this on the web. 
Um, uh, they were the things that were taken out, as far as I know, what I'm most familiar with, and I was actually being made aware of this when I was still in the church, because there were some Scientologists who were KR and who were writing knowledge reports about the fact that this was being done. And I actually had a conversation with the person who represented the Golden Era Productions at, at my management level about this, because I was concerned. I was like, what is this about editing Hubbard's lectures? And he was like, you know, assured me, uh, within the world of the Sea Org even, I was bringing this up, and he assured me, no, no, it's all according to Hubbard's instructions, and uh, the people at Gold are good people, and they're not trying to uh, detract from Scientology or take away anything vital and important from Hubbard's works. Well, that's, that's true enough in the relative, you know, value system of Scientology. I mean, the people at Gold are well-intentioned people. They're not trying to con, you know, other Scientologists or something. And let's, it's only when you get up to the very, very top that you start getting into that kind of thing. But Hubbard, uh, I'm sure, did leave instructions about this. And David Miscavige has certainly taken on the decision-making responsibility of cutting out whole swaths of stuff out of his lectures and out of his books. Things like references to black Dianetics, uh, which was Hubbard's way of talking about, alt in the early days, altering Dianetics to make it worse or create bad or ill effects on people. Um, Hubbard said that Dianetics was very powerful mental technology, which it's not, but he claimed that it was, and in order to add to the mystique of it, he created this idea of black Dianetics where you would use Dianetics techniques harmfully in a premeditatedly harmful fashion. Okay, so he taught, he made references to some of that in his early lectures. There were also just commentary questions and answers that would come up during lectures. Uh, you know, Hubbard would get interrupted from time to time uh, that were cut out. Uh, and people, references to people who have been declared now suppressive are taken out of the lectures, right? There were many, many places where Hubbard referred to Mary Sue, even had little conversations with her in the lecture. Uh, that stuff got, you know, got taken out in some places. References to other family members or other notables of Scientology's history uh, were taken out. So, uh, so that kind of editing happened, right? Basically anything that would make it, make, give Hubbard a bad rap, right? Uh, also, uh, racist type comments or uh, references where Hubbard was talking about um, you know, other ethnicities and, uh, and in, in a derogatory fashion, right? And even, even the stuff that's still in there is pretty bad, but, but they took stuff out apparently that was like really bad. So, uh, so anyway, that's what I know about that. As far as books or written material, there have been extensive edits and deletions from Hubbard's written materials. And yes, there have been books that have been sort of pushed aside, and we don't talk about those too much anymore. One of those being a book called Hymn of Asia, where Hubbard claimed to be the reincarnation of Buddha or uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy, more specifically, of Maitreya, or Maitreya, uh, which is an old, uh, you know, Hindu-Buddhist philosophy. I, I, Hindu-Buddhist, I'm not, I'm not amalgamating the two. I don't remember which one it was. I think it's Buddhist. Uh, some old, you know, 
uh, prophecy that Hubbard claimed existed, which I believe exists, but, but it doesn't exist in the, in the context and wording and description that Hubbard gives it. Hubbard made it out that he was Matreya, right, or Matea. And, uh, and if you actually look this stuff up, you find out, yeah, no, not so much. So Hubbard tried to pawn that one off on his followers in the mid-late 50s. I think he wrote this, this whole, you know, poetic work called Hymn of Asia. So, uh, and they even put that to music at one point. But now you really don't hear too much about that. And the book has not been available for sale by the Church of Scientology in many, many years. When I was still in, they actually took it out of circulation and you couldn't get it. But then they made a put it to music and sort of made this opera and then that kind of happened and then you never heard about it again ever. So that is uh, one work I know they've sort of brushed under the rug. I don't know if there were any other works written by Hubbard that have not ever, you know, that have been hidden away. I mean Excalibur obviously uh, they have copies of and they've never released or printed any of that. And Revolt uh, in the Stars, which is the screenplay Hubbard wrote. Uh, that's not got broad issue within the church. Uh, you'd have to really kind of be an old-timer and have been around for a while to have even heard of it. So uh, that's what I can think of off the top of my head at least. But uh, the answer to your question uh, of whether you're wearing a tinfoil hat or not is a resounding uh, no. That's not a tinfoil hat situation. You are right. And that has happened. Elmo. Could you describe how it is in the Sea Org when you get older? Is there retirement? Or pension plan? Or reduced work program? Is there a Sea Org cemetery? Burial at sea? Are these expenses paid for? Perhaps these issues have changed over the decades since the start of the Sea Org. Can you comment on any changes with these topics over the years? Okay, I have uh, spoken about Sea Org uh, senior citizens in the past, but let's go ahead and um, just go over a couple more things on this. Um, as people get older in the Sea Org, they're generally given uh, a more lax schedule, a reduced schedule, um, because they're just not physically capable of continuing to put in a full, full-time Sea Org schedule. Uh, but a lot of those old senior citizens I saw were some of the most dedicated. I mean, they were pretty hardcore believers. Uh, they were lifers, right? I mean, they knew they were going to die in the Sea Org. These were people in their 70s and 80s. Um, so they were kind of, they were pretty all in. And, uh, and they had a, a letter writing kind of jobs. I mean, these were not people who were working, you know, grueling, tough jobs as a, as a general rule, right? They were mainly letter writers or uh, did folder work, right? In other words, administrative work, sitting at, sitting at a desk most of the day doing writing or, or typing, right? If they were doing letter, letter writing on a computer, let's say, or a typewriter. Um, I saw some old people who were doing grounds kind of work or estates work or engineering work, um, but it wasn't work that wasn't, you know, that they weren't up to particularly. Although, of course, I say this in a, that's in a broader sense, right? I mean, in a, in a, in a acute sense, there were instances where old people would be made to do, you know, senior citizens would be made to do very strenuous work uh, and not pleasant, not fun work. And of course, they, you know, tired out, it didn't have, you know, had bad things happen to them. And that, that absolutely happens in the Sea Org. It's not like, uh, you know, people who uh, get to a certain age start living the life of Riley or something. 
Generally speaking, though, that's that reduced schedule starts happening because their bodies become, you know, uh, infirm and, and uh, they get sicknesses and diseases and that sort of thing. Cancer comes along and then you really don't see them much at all. Then they're getting treatment and they're hanging out in their room, right? And whether that's a dorm room or a, a, a private couple's room um, depends on the person. Um, but most senior citizens I've seen actually were single, which is kind of interesting. Um, and let's see, beyond the reduced schedule, there are not a lot of, I mean, they get taken care of, but it's a very low quality of life, right? You know, they, uh, like a reduced schedule might be that they get up in the morning and then they work a, a full day, but then they go after dinner, they're done. Right? They, they, they secure and they go up to their room and they hang out and generally they read or, you know, and I didn't, never saw any of them watching TV or something because generally TVs were pretty frowned upon. Anyway, and they kind of live out their years that way. I did see uh, a couple instances of um, senior citizen Sea Org members who just couldn't work anymore. They just got to a point where they were either seen a bit senile, they could not remember things well enough to be able to, to hold down a job, and old enough that their bodies were just too slow and they just weren't, weren't going to be able to cut really any kind of work at all. And they were put in uh, senior citizen living, uh, assisted living uh, situations. And those, I, I believe that was paid for by the Sea Org, but I could be wrong about that. I didn't ever really, I just sort of assumed that at the time. I, I can't say for sure that that was actually the case. It could have been that the person's pension or Social Security or whatever was used to pay for that. Um, but I did see that happen in a couple instances. Uh, when I also saw that people who were in Clearwater, old, older uh, Sea Org members from there, were shipped to Los Angeles because they didn't want them dying off at Flag in Clearwater. They didn't want any kind of deaths involved with anything going on over there. Uh, no inquiries, no deaths, nothing, right? Just, just lock it down. So they'll ship them off to some other place or they'll ship them out of the Sea Org entirely and stick them with a family or something like that. I've never, I never saw an instance where a senior citizen was kicked to the curb without being taken care of in some fashion or another. Um, but I didn't have a lot of experience with it either. That's, uh, that very well could have, could have occurred. The ones I saw were, were pretty much taken care of and I only saw a couple instances of this. So uh, no, there's no pension plan in the Sea Org or retirement program. Uh, and there isn't any formal burial at sea or anything like that. I think they pretty much leave it to the people's families to deal with funeral arrangements or anything like that once a person dies. Um, if the person is a working Sea Org member and they die abruptly or whatever, then yeah, sure, the, the, the Sea Org's going to deal with that however they deal with it. I was never involved in the details of that, so I can't really speak to them. Um, like anyone who dies in the Sea Org, uh, they are given a, a, a memoriam uh, write-up of their accomplishments as a Scientologist and Sea Org member, and a 21-year leave of absence is formally granted to them because it's assumed that they're going to come back around in their next life and pick back up on being a Scientologist and a Sea Org member and report for duty. So that's always the attitude of Sea Org members about uh, people who have died, old or young, you know, when they when that happens. And I guess that's I guess that's about all I can really say about that. I you know, I don't have any uh, 
salacious details about, you know, elder abuse or something, because it didn't, I didn't really come across that in the years that I was in the Sea Org. Um, I saw, you know, I, I saw what I saw. I definitely did see, actually I should say, I definitely did see a couple people, abu very abusive toward elderly people, but they were people who were abusive toward everyone. So it wasn't like they were singling out the elder for their, you know, to whet their appetites on them. They were assholes to everybody. Uh, and that was a, just a couple people. Most people that I knew in the Sea Org were very compassionate and caring towards senior citizens and went out of their way to try to help them, uh, give them the time off that they needed to, you know, for their reduced schedule or whatever. And they didn't begrudge them that. Very, very rarely did I run into anything like that while I was in. Vendace. In the infamous Stephen Fishman deposition video, Fishman talks about being told by his auditor, as a part of his whole track handling, to seek out a woman who had poisoned him in a previous life. Confronting her reduced the charge of the incident. I know Fishman was an expert con man and was just pretending to be a Scientologist. However, I wonder if auditors ever actually tell preclears, as a part of their processing, to seek out people, objects, or places they think they knew in a previous life. I know Hubbard allegedly believed he had buried treasures in Mediterranean locations in his previous lives and was now trying to find them. Was he serious or was he just trying to impress his followers? Okay, this is actually a good question. Um, I never encountered any auditor anywhere under any circumstances who advised his preclear to go find in the real world old people that, the, you know, people that he thought he had known before or go to places where the person had been in a past life. Never heard or saw anything like that. There is an auditing action called the PTS Rundown, which is supposed to address PTS situations, uh, potential trouble source situations, in other words, a connection to a suppressive person from past lives, okay? Uh, the idea being that maybe the suppressive person who is on your case now, let's say it's your boss, right, Joe, uh, the idea is that maybe you knew Joe or someone a lot like Joe in a past life, okay? And I believe the actual technical thing was that you actually knew that guy before. Right, and that, but that was all within the four walls of the auditing room. There was never any idea of going and finding Joe and telling him, I knew you in a past life, you dirty dog, and you ruined my life then, and you're ruining my life now, and rah, 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 rah. <laughs> none of that ever happens in Scientology, okay? Um, but people would. Lots of times I saw, I had discussions with Scientologists, just informal social conversations, where they freely talked about places they had been in past lives, people they had known in past lives, and, and Hubbard even commented on how um, men, young men, would use the idea, of the fantasy of having known each other in past lives to pick up women. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't know that it was only men who did that, but that's what Hubbard commented on, right? Is that hey, this was one of the reasons Hubbard gave for not talking about your past life experiences with others is because it was used to, you know, sexual advantage by, uh, I don't know, a rather immoral Scientologists, I guess. Um, I actually thought 
you know, that somebody I had had a relationship with at one point, not my ex-wife, but somebody else when I was in Scientology, was somebody that I knew in a past life, right? And we, and we kind of talked about that. So, uh, so you can have that kind of thing happen all the time in Scientology. But, um, but, it's, but that's different from it being advised that you do that uh, from, you know, instructions from your auditor or something like that. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Hubbard did go around in the Mediterranean looking for buried treasures. He directed people to go dig up in, in, to the treasures or the supposed treasures in certain places where he directed them to. He didn't go personally do it. He sent his missionaries out to go do it, his little Sea Org people. And uh, they never found anything. Uh, they found things that kind of resembled or sort of looked like what Hubbard described would be there, you know, there will be a tower and a tree and there will be a pit or something, you know, whatever, however Hubbard described it. They would go and look in the general area where Hubbard had said that this was the case and they would try to find something that looked like this and then they would start digging, looking for where Hubbard said the treasure was and they never found any. So if Hubbard was just putting them on, uh, that was a pretty poor strategy because everybody connected with that just sort of thought less of Hubbard as a result because they didn't find anything. Um, but uh, so I don't think Hubbard was putting them on. I think Hubbard really believed that that that, that was the case, that he had, you know, caches of treasure around the Mediterranean and he wanted to have them dug up so he could be rich, rich, rich. Uh, and that was a total failure on his part. That was all laid out in a book called Mission Into Time. Um, and by the way, on that earlier uh, uh, question about you know books and stuff that have, that have sort of disappeared, that's another one of those books that you don't really see too much in, in Scientology anymore. But I don't know that there was any effort made to actively get rid of it. I don't, I don't know what the publishing history was on Mission Into Time as to why they stopped producing it, but at some point they did. So there you go. Charles A. Prince. What is Scientology's viewpoint on karma? Did Hubbard come up with his slant on it? Is it taught in one of the levels and do they believe it? Scientologists do not believe in karma. Now by karma, when I say that, what I understand from a Western point of view about karma is that it is a cosmic force or sort of cosmic scales of justice or the idea that if you do, I mean I've heard it a couple, explained to me a few different ways, but basically the idea is that uh, what you do now could be revisited upon you at a later point in time, whether that's something good that you've done or something bad that you've done. It's not all just bad. Um, but there's this sort of idea of these scales and there's a balance and, you know, whatever, you know, however that's supposed to, to work. And clearly, if such a thing existed, it would be an external force or entity or awareness of some kind that was sort of uh, you know, creating this this cosmic justice of some kind, right, or balance. Um, that's how I understand it. So from that point of view is how I'm answering this question, okay? And no, there's, there's nothing like that in Scientology. Um, now what there is, okay, is personal responsibility for everything that's happened to you. Okay, this is how Hubbard lays it down, is he doesn't, he does not some external force. It's you who's doing it. Okay, who's, who's creating that balance. And you're doing it kind of subconsciously but knowingly because 
you are basically a good person or a good spiritual being. You, in other words, you're of good will or good intent. You don't, you know, want to be hurting other people or harming other people. And yet, you know, we've degraded to a point over all these trillania where you might be a Hitler or you might be a really bad person or something, you know, you might just be a generally kind of a douchey kind of person. Um, and yet you don't want to be, you know, when you're doing bad things or harming other people, that that's a bad thing to do. Even if it's deep, 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 deep down inside, there's some little inkling of awareness that you know that what you've done is wrong and bad on a, on a broad, big moral compass, okay, that we're all sort of operating on. This is all Hubbard's assertion, okay? So, um, so if you find yourself doing bad, if you find yourself uh, committing overt acts, as they call it in Scientology, on other people, whether it's, you know, harming other people, killing people, stealing from them, whatever the, the specifics of it are, you will somehow yourself revisit those bad things upon yourself, okay? And the way this is expressed in Scientology is it's called you, you pulled it in. Okay, you pull that bad thing in on you, okay? Hubbard talks about this in terms of energy flows. You outflow something bad, you're going to inflow something bad. You're going to pull that bad energy or bad action back in on yourself in a sort of, you know, uh, Again, it looks like it might be karma or something or justice, but it's you doing it, okay? Which is why I differentiate it from karma. And that's about the simplest way I can explain it. Maybe there's more details you'd want to know about that or something, but that's kind of the easiest way I can think of. So there you go. Stefan, how much of Scientology ideology is hidden in movies besides Battlefield Earth, which is obviously 100% Hubbard? I mean other movies with, let's say, Tom Cruise. Since you're a movie buff and former Scientologist, you might spot ideology or other things hidden in movies taken from Scientology, which the actors or writers packaged or placed in movies. I heard also some of Will Smith movies have some Scientology ideas hidden in them. Yes, this does happen. Uh, I have heard uh, from uh, my friend Mark Headley. He talked about, I think he wrote a whole article about how there was Scientology symbology and ideas in Will Smith's uh, movie After Earth. Um, I think that was the name of the movie. I didn't actually see it. And I think that was a uh, M. Night Shyamalan uh, movie. Um, but So he wrote it. Uh, not, not a Scientologist, right? But Will Smith might have come in and, and made some adjustments to the script. Uh, you know, like, like superstars, like he can have the ability to do. But again, I didn't see that movie. What I did see, and what I can talk to uh, about this, was John Travolta uh, in the movie Swordfish, okay? He practically quoted L. Ron Hubbard in that movie. And that was the most blatant example I've ever seen of Scientology ending up in a movie, in, of, of a Hollywood production. There's a scene where John Travolta's character is talking to Hugh Jackman's character, Stan, and he's explaining to him, this is near the end of the movie, in a bus. They're sitting there going off to the, the big climax of the movie, and John Travolta's character explains to Hugh Jackman, or, or asks him a question. He says, if you had a cure that would 
you know, that would to a disease that would cure a, a hundred or a thousand people, but one person would die, what would, you know, would you implement that cure? And, and Hugh Jackman's character is like, uh, you know, no, of course not, that's ridiculous. And, and John Travolta's like, of course you would, it's the greatest good to do that. That's how we, that's, that's ethics, right? That's how ethics works. And he was explaining this in the context of how his character in the movie could do all these horrible things as a terrorist, which is what he was acting like, but he was doing this in order to justify, or ration, he, was, he was rationalizing his behavior because the, the character was somebody who was acting in the best interest of the United States by getting money to fund operations to take out terrorists. And it was a, it was a wholly ridiculous premise, but, um, but then again, maybe not. I don't know. When you hear about some of the nonsense the CIA has gotten up to over the years. But um, anyway, that, that rationale of how Travolta was explaining all that was lifted almost word for word out of the Introduction to Scientology Ethics book. So that's, that, was, that was definitely in there. I don't recall anything that I've seen in a Tom Cruise movie that I would, have, that I would say, oh, that's right out of Scientology texts, right? Because remember that Scientology is borrowed from many other things, and a lot of the more basic Scientology concepts are just common sense principles. So you see that kind of stuff in movies all the time, but I couldn't, you know, just because Tom Cruise is in a movie where some common sense principle is, is brought up, I can't go, oh, Scientology, right? I've never seen a Tom Cruise movie or any Scientology Scientologist in a movie where they were discussing body thetans or man's immortal spiritual nature or anything like that, right? Oh, that did make me think of another John Travolta movie, though, called Phenomenon where he played a regular guy who gets hit, you know, one day realizes or gets hit by lightning or something happens to him and he suddenly has these psychic abilities. And as that movie progresses forward, there are some Scientology-like things sort of thrown in the mix, but, you know, kind of the, the let's all get along and can't we all just live together and maybe if we did so, we'd see that there's a commonality to our life and, and our nature, right, our spiritual nature. So that was kind of also in there. John Travolta, I think, has done more to disseminate Scientology principles in his movies than Tom Cruise ever has, now that I think about it. Um, but that's just my, what I can remember off the top of my head. So, uh, so yeah, you will see some Scientology principles out there, um, but pr probably more in JT movies than you will in anything else. It is time for Flash Answers. Mr. Marathon 1989. Will the IRS revoke tax exemption? Yes or no? I say no. Maybe things will change. Maybe there's something happening that I don't know anything about right now. But given everything that I personally know and the circumstances required in order to get that revoked, I say no. Rafaela Hospin. Are the Seventh-day Adventists a cult? My conditional answer is no, that it is not a cult. Um, or rather, it's not a destructive cult, which is what I think you're actually asking me. Uh, I mean, every religion is a cult if you, if you strictly use dictionary definitions. But uh, Seventh-day Adventists are the group that um, are actually all about religious freedom. Uh, they have actually put good money and effort into advocating for uh, separation of church and state and 
um, and advocating for religious freedom, and that pretty much right there makes them a uh, not a destructive cult, right? There, I didn't find in my quick, admittedly quick review of what the Seventh Day Adventists are and their uh, how they behave. I did not see um, that it was part of their dogma or part of their uh, structure to uh, to behave in an overtly abusive fashion toward their members. Uh, and I did not see a, a cult relationship between the leadership of that group and the members of that group. So conditionally, you know, unless there's other information I don't have, I would say no. Continuing self-education. I am Jewish and am often called paranoid by my friends, but I get suspicious when I observe things that I think might be anti-Semitic references. I am referring to the two main Scientology symbols, the eight-pointed cross and the S with the two triangles. Subliminally, and perhaps not so subliminally, I look at the eight-pointed cross and see a Christian crucifix with an X over the top of it. Do you think that LRH's eight dynamics, which this cross is meant to symbolize, was an invented narrative that came after his symbol was created or copied from Aleister Crowley as a very private joke for himself? In other words, could this be a way for him to symbolize a negation of Christianity? I have heard LRH make comments that show that he did not like Jesus or Christianity, but do you think this was an outward but purposely unexplained expression of that hatred? Could this symbol be a subliminal way for him to nullify a Scientologist belief in Christianity? Perhaps this next question shows where my Jewish paranoia really kicks in. When I look at the other common symbol that Scientology uses, the S with the two triangles, I see a Star of David that has been taken apart with a snake crawling through it. I have always thought that the font that is used for the word Scientology had a very sinister element to it, but I wonder if it was chosen so that the initial S looked like a creepy snake, subliminally if not consciously. The reason why this could be important is that many anti-Semitic writers and commentators have referred to Jews collectively as a snake, with the head being the allegedly evil rabbis and Zionists who desire to take over the world, and the body of the snake being the rest of the Jewish population. The dismantling of the Star of David into two plain triangles could be LRH's secret desire for Scientology to wrest this fictitious control from the Jewish people and their supposedly evil conspiracy. So I am wondering, did you ever hear or read any anti-Semitic comments from LRH? If you can comment on any of this, I would be very interested. Okay, not to be too brush off or whatever, but yeah, you're definitely being paranoid, dude. Um, I never heard L. Ron Hubbard utter one word of that I would say was anti-Semitic. I mean, not not once. I mean, he, yeah, sure, he was down on Christ, but he said he said Christ was an implant. He wasn't down on the Jewish people or making it out to be some kind of Jewish conspiracy. He, he the the idea that Christ was an implant is something Hubbard was blaming on a space civilization that existed trillions of years ago. So that had nothing to do whatsoever with the Jewish people. And even in, his, in the deepest of Hubbard's conspiracy theories, where he talked about the 12 bankers taking over the world and using psychiatry and all of that, that did not have any uh, anti-Semitic sort of taste to it or, or attitude to it of any kind. I never, I never saw anything like that in Scientology, so I really think you are reading way too much into the symbology of Scientology. Hubbard ripped off the Rosie Cross, which I've covered already on this, on this show before, 
from the Rosicrucians, uh, which was an OTO thing. And so if you know you could trace it back to the OTO and you could start talking looking at that, maybe there's some anti-Semitism connected with that. I have no idea. But that's not why Scientology or why L. Ron Hubbard adopted that symbol. Uh, I've done a video on the eight dynamics. It's a very early concept in Scientology. Uh, in fact, in Dianetics, before Scientology was even a subject, uh, the, the concept of the eight dynamics had already been formulated. So, um, and as far as the S and double triangles, yeah, I just, I can't really go there with you, dude. I, I have no evidence whatsoever that Hubbard uh, created that symbol in a, in a way that it was supposed to be an anti-Semitic message. So I, I call bullshit on all of the above. Okay, everybody, that's our show for this week. Thanks for coming around. I hope you found my answers entertaining, interesting, and educational. Um, please leave any comments or questions in the comment section of my Q&A videos, and I will see them and I will address them. Thanks for coming around, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.